Today's reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. In the year... Today's reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a high and exalted throne, the edges of his robe filling the temple. Winged creatures were stationed around him. Each had six wings. With two they veiled their faces, with two their feet, and with two they flew about. They shouted to each other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heavenly forces. All the earth is filled with God's glory. The doorframe shook at the sound of their shouting, and the house was filled with smoke. I said, Mourn for me. I'm ruined. I'm a man with unclean lips, and I live among a people with unclean lips. Yet I've seen the King, the Lord of heavenly forces. Then one of the winged creatures flew to me, holding a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has departed, and your sin is removed. Then I heard the Lord's voice saying, Whom should I send, and who will go for us? I said, I'm here. Send me. Here ends the reading. You know, the, uh, the process towards ordination is a long and time-consuming process, but for good reason. There are things that one must learn, and understand properly to be an effective minister, including history, biblical languages, theology, and so forth. And the graduate school that one attends to learn these things is called a seminary. However, there's more to learn than just facts and knowledge. Um, one must also come to a better understanding of oneself and uh, to one's relationship with God and to other people. Much of the ordination process, including one's time in seminary, is a period of discernment and reflection on why one feels called to serve God's church in the first place, and on how one can bring one's whole self into that service. Many people who enter seminary, myself included, um, are greatly changed by the experience. When we enter, we often feel unworthy of our calling. We want legitimacy to be given to us by our elders and by our contemporaries in the faith. And to some extent, that is what happens um, as we are approved for graduation by the seminary professors and staff, and as we are approved for ordination by our various denominational bodies, church bodies. But in a much deeper and more primal way, I think the experience of discernment and self-reflection is what really makes us into ministers, not the, uh, the, not the, the uh, intellectual learning or the, the uh, paper that we get from other organizations. There was one particular memory I had from seminary that came to mind when I was reading uh, today's reading from Isaiah. In my second year at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary, I took a class on worship. This is one of those classes. You know, there's 
you take classes in theology and biblical studies and things that one of the classes, at least one, that you take is on, on worship, how to, how to do worship. And the focus of the class was to kind of give us knowledge that we needed to be able to perform all the various Christian rituals that we would be, we would need to perform as ministers, the sacraments and the, um, other, you know, things. And also, uh, it gave us a chance to practice these things, um, in a very safe and, uh, in theory, low anxiety environment because we were not doing them quote unquote for real. We were doing them in class. So we each took turns, uh, one person, a class over a long period, over the whole, the whole semester, really, we each took turns, um, performing one of kind of four standard things that ministers are expected to be able to do, <laughs> if you will, ritually. So we did a baptism, we did a, uh, a, a Eucharist, you know, or Lord's Supper service, we did um, a marriage, and we did a funeral. And we, we rotated through and, until everyone had a, had a chance to do these things. And uh, it was during this kind of rotation through that, that this thing happened that I, that I was remembering when I was reading Isaiah. I had a friend of mine in, in the class who uh, still is a good friend of mine, um, had come from the uh, Episcopal Church, the, the Anglican uh, Church. And that church has a very strict hierarchy in terms of who is authorized to perform various sacraments and ordinances. Uh, it's a, it's called the Episcopal Church because it has an Episcopal polity, meaning it's ruled by, ruled by bishops. And so there are bishops and there are priests and there are um, deacons and there are other, uh, uh, other roles that you can play in the church, um, depending on, on what you're doing. But different roles have different uh, authority to perform different uh, sacraments and such. As opposed, let's say, to my own tradition, the Congregationalist tradition, where it's the congregation that has control and they, they, give, they give permission to the minister to perform all those things, um, and they, we don't have bishops. So my, in that church, the, the Eucharist is, a, is a, in, the, in the Episcopal Church, the Eucharist is a very important, um, very important sacrament, and they generally believe that Jesus' body and blood are, are really there in the, the br uh, bread and wine of the Eucharist. There's some argument within the church, I think, over the, ex the exact way that that happens. This was a, an argument that, that came up among the Protestant reformers um, right away uh, during the Reformation about how exactly it is, is, the, is the bread and wine transformed into the body and blood of Christ. But in any case, the point is that they, they believe that it's truly there, that that really is the body and blood of Christ. And so they treat the, the elements, as they call them, the bread and the wine, they treat them very specially. They treat them with a lot of honor and respect. And uh, so much so that if there are leftovers at the end of the service, generally speaking, the, the priest is expected to finish the leftovers or they're stored in special uh, vessels or boxes until the next service where they can be used again because they've already been consecrated the act of consecrating them the act of, of the act of doing 
the Eucharist service and saying the saying the words and, and doing the motions consecrates them, turns them into the body and blood of Christ in the understanding of the of the Episcopal Church. And so when it came time for my friend to perform the, the Eucharist service as part of this rotation through worship, she had a really hard time doing it. She had to go because she was not ordained. She technically could not do this service in her, in her, um, in her denomination. And so she went to her priest, had him consecrate the elements and then gave, he gave her already consecrated elements to bring, to do the Eucharist service, the rest of the Eucharist service, um, with, and so she treated them very reverently. But what we found is she had never done this before, which is, I mean, that's part of why you do this class, is so that you can you have a chance to do these things that you may never have done before. She had never done this before. And so when she got up to the table, and you have to imagine this, this is a, a you know, um, a, a Eucharist table or a communion table. It's, it's about, you know, it's about hip high and it's it's only big enough to put you know a couple of things on and it's the front of the cl- of a classroom and so there there's that table and there and she's standing there and there's an assistant helping her and then we're all sitting just in chairs in front of her you know in our regular clothes and everything you know from my perspective fairly laid back situation but but she was literally shaking um she just she was so beside herself with the the enormous reality of what she was doing that she was, she was just shaking and she, her, her voice was breaking and, and she was having such a hard time. She was having such a hard time that, um, her assistant had, had to help her. So she didn't spill the wine because her hand was shaking with the, with the chalice. And, um, what happened is we all started cheering her on in the, we were like, you can do it you got this, you can do it. We were, we were cheering her on and telling her that she, you know, she could, she could do it. And she did. And, um, you know, it was a good, it was a good experience for us and, and, um, something we still talk about, obviously. Um, but it's, what happened is that, you know, my, my friend had, I guess, had never really thought about, never been, never been, um, confronted with the reality that she was going to be the person doing these things, this thing that she considered to be so important and so meaningful. And, and here she was face to face with it, um, face to face with the calling of, of becoming a priest. And, and she was, you know, shaken, literally shaken by it. And I don't know, I don't want to speak for her, but I can imagine that, she she probably felt unworthy of this that she had not received the authority to do this that who you know who is she to be doing this thing she's she's just a student she you know, all this kind of stuff maybe she felt unworthy as isaiah felt unworthy in the reading it's one thing to talk about ministry in an abstract way but it's something completely different to practice it for real with one's own hands but she made it through because she had the support and the help of the people around her. So let's look at this text with Isaiah and his unworthiness or his perceived unworthiness. 
Isaiah was a prophet, um, one of the one of the what they call the greater prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, he was sent by God to warn the Judeans about the terrible events that were going to befall them uh, in the coming years. He's considered to be one of the most important prophets of the Old Testament. But the book of Isaiah, which is quite long um, compared to the other books of the prophets, uh, is kind of obtuse and and difficult to read for modern readers. And the, the reason for that is because relies a lot on allegory and and um, metaphor relating to the political situation of Isaiah, of Isaiah's day and what was going on around him. Uh, and so because of this, if we don't read first kind of about what was happening around Isaiah, the, the book can seem very strange or can seem like it doesn't make any sense. So the other thing about this book is, is that most, or not most, many, many modern theologians and biblical scholars think this book was probably two different things. Like there were the, the first 39 chapters were probably written by Isaiah, and the chapters 40 through 66 were probably written by somebody else, an anonymous author, about 150 years later, while the, the Judeans were in exile in Babylon. Uh, and the reason for that is based partially on, on the text. And, you know, uh, if if God really did give a, uh, you know, a prophetic sight to Isaiah so that he could see the future and he would, he, then maybe he could know some of these things that are listed in the second half of the book. But uh, it's also just as likely that it was written in later by somebody else who would live through those things. The other aspect of that, why they think it's two different books is because of the writing style and the vocabulary and other things that, that happen. Um, not that that's really important to this, my point today, I just to give you a little bit of background. So Isaiah um, was living in in Judah. Remember, there were there were two kingdoms: the northern kingdom of Israel, and the uh, and the southern kingdom of Judah. And he probably grew up in Jerusalem. And he was born in a time of economic prosperity, and a time of great spiritual need. Uh, it was a time that was marked by large inequality in social classes and economic status. So the poor were very poor and the rich were very rich. And during his lifetime, he saw the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians. So the Assyrians were the big power uh, of the area of his day. And they um, they tried to invade and they were fought back by uh, an army comprising of the 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 Israelites from you know, from the northern kingdom of Israel and um, the Syrians, and eventually that that uh, they were having problems and they they came to Judah for help and the king of Judah said I can't I can't get involved in this um, and kind of sided with Assyria and then Assyria came through and and uh, defeated Israel and Syria and Syria and sent the Israelites into exile in Assyria. Um, I know it gets confusing between Syria and Assyria, so I apologize about that. But so, um, or maybe Samaria. I'm, anyway, so the point is that he saw this great turmoil and he saw that, that the, he, saw he, he witnessed the Northern Kingdom fail and the, the people being dragged off um, to, to foreign lands and things. And so after this, he, he warned the king of Judah that there was going to be a, there was going to be a time 
when the Judeans would, would be taken away into exile in the same way. That um, God had told him that, that the only hope was for some remnant, some small portion of the Judeans to, to remember God and, and to keep God's ways, and that that small portion would be, would be kept safe so that they could then later uh, affect change through the entire world, through all the nations, uh, to bring about God's kingdom and to, to bring about reconciliation with God. And so Isaiah believed, and, and you know, uh, it, it says that, that God told Isaiah that, that even though Isaiah was going to preach these things, that most people would not believe him and that their hearts would be hardened. And so I, Isaiah knew that going in. He knew going in that he wasn't going to be able to help very many people, but he was going to be able to help a small group, a remnant of people. And that through those people, God's plan to, um, to, to bring salvation to all mankind would be, uh, would be fulfilled. So his, his writings focus a lot on this kind of universalism that, that really runs through the, the whole Old Testament but comes to a head in, in the book of Isaiah, where, he, where Isaiah sees God saving all of the nations through the remnant people that, had, that were from the, the tribe of Israel who, who, who were going to be going into exile in, in diaspora. And his writings then kind of focus on the holiness and the majesty and the power and the oneness of God. And we really start to see here a real focus on there is only one God and God is all powerful and God is, is uh, omniscient. All, all of those things are, you know, Isaiah kind of puts into play. And um, he also foresaw the, the forecoming, uh, he, first, he foresaw the, the coming of, of a Messiah figure. He, he knew that God was going to send a Messiah and he knew that, that the Messiah would work to, to um, take this remnant who had who had been saved through you know through the exile, uh, and and use them to bring God's message to the world, and uh, because his focus was so much on faith and having faith in God, he's sometimes referred to as the prophet of faith. His the the book is is um, the book of Isaiah is the most quoted. Uh, Old Testament book in the New, in the New Testament by both by Jesus and by the other um, uh, authors of the of the New Testament. So, what about this actual story we were we were seeing? So, uh, King Uzziah uh, was the uh, was the king of Judah, and he died in 740 BC. And we know this from other sources um, as well. So we know that that's that's the date 740 BC, and um, Isaiah says that it was in the same year that King Uzziah died that uh, that he went to visit the temple. And, and the way he describes it is as a vision. So he had a vision of being in the temple. And he saw uh, the, the, all these amazing things. Just to kind of repeat, I saw the Lord sitting on a high and exalted throne. I saw winged creatures that were stationed around him. Each had six wings. And they shouted to each other saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heavenly forces. All the earth is filled with God's glory. 
Um, this is part of a part of the language say during Eucharist service, um, actually. So, and he says that the door frame shook at the sound of their shouting, and the house was filled with smoke. So he's he's kind of describing here a, a religious experience, right? He's he has a vision of being in the temple, in the in the holiest of holies, where only the priests were allowed to go. He has a vision of being in there and seeing the the throne the throne of God, which was an actual like a physical thing in the in the temple, and seeing cherubim, uh, these these winged creatures flying around uh, in around the around God, and God is. You know, God is there, and his, God's robe is filling the room, and and the, there's smoke from the incense, or, or or from God's majesty. We're not really told, but I I can imagine the incense of the temple and everything filling the room, seeing all of these amazing sights, hearing all these amazing sounds as, as the as the winged creatures shout to one another about how wonderful God is. All of this stuff. It's a very kind of overwhelming religious experience that Isaiah is having, and then. Then he he freaks out. He says, "You know, oh, you know, mourn for me. I'm ruined. I'm a man with unclean lips, and I live among people with unclean lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of Heavenly Forces." So he's scared because you're not supposed to be able to see God unless you are. Um, you're not supposed to be, you know, unless you're a priest, not just a priest, but a a very uh, religious priest who has gone through all the right purification and. All this kind of things. They were the only ones who were allowed to go in to the Holy of Holy um, to to serve God directly. So this is why Isaiah is worried. He's scared because he thinks, "Oh God, what have I done? I'm, you know, God's going to be angry at me." But then one of the winged creatures flies to Isaiah and takes a, a glowing coal. From the altar, so they had they had coal on the on the altar, burned down wood, right? That they used to burn the burnt offerings. So they they would burn offerings on the altar, and uh, they would burn down, you know, completely. So all this coal. So so he takes one of the coals from the altar, um, which of course is also used to burn the incense, right? And the the winged creature takes it and he touches it to Isaiah's lips. And he says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has departed and your sin is removed. And then he hears the, now that he's been made guiltless by the, by the anointing with this coal, hot coal, he hears God say, whom should I send and who will go for us? And he replies, I'm here, send me. So he has this great religious experience where he feels that he is completely unworthy of this calling that he that he that has been placed on him from God to to go out and tell people and to to save this remnant so that they can so that, that remnant can later fulfill God's plans he feels completely unworthy of this because he has he has unworthy lips uh, and he comes from a people of unworthy lips so his you know, he's saying that the Judeans are, are worshiping false gods. The Judeans are, are are not living up to God's um, to God's plan. All this kind of thing. But nonetheless, he's still chosen um, to to do the work that God has asked for. So, what's interesting about this reading is that it shows us 
uh, and, I, and really it shows us again, because we see this over and over throughout the Bible. This is one of the narrative um, lines that we see repeated over and over, is that God chooses people who are broken or deeply flawed um, to fulfill God's, uh, God's plans uh, on earth. And we see this again and again. You know, David was a, a very flawed person. Uh, his son Solomon was a very flawed person. Uh, we, you know, lots of people that, that are called by God are, are imperfect. And in fact, we are all imperfect. We all sin, meaning we, we all stumble. We all make mistakes. Uh, we all fall short of our own expectations or of God's expectations for us. And so since that's the human condition and everybody, everybody is broken in some way, then it only makes sense that God would, would ask those who are broken, those who are um, imperfect, to fulfill God's plans. And, but we often forget that. You know, we, we often think, oh, look at that priest, look at that, you know, uh, that holy person, look at, at that, you know, whoever. They're, they're, they must be so much more spiritually perfect than me. They must, they must you know, be a, a, a saint, um, because that's why they're why God has put them in the role that they're in. But the truth is that they're all just human beings, like everybody else. Um, you know, it's much easier for us to focus on our own brokenness than it is for us to accept that we are already loved by God just the way we are. And it's easier for us to focus on our own worthlessness than to accept that we are already worthy in God's eyes. Isaiah thought that he and his people were unworthy of being God's messenger, but God showed him that it's only God who decides who is worthy and not worthy, not us. Who are we to say if we are worthy or not? God has called on all of us to participate in the creation of God's kingdom through the life and teachings of Jesus, the Messiah that Isaiah foresaw coming. And there will be many events in our lives through which God will ask us, Whom shall I send? And when this happens, we should strive to have enough faith in God to reply simply, as Isaiah did, I'm here, send me. When we see the, the, the people who on the street who need help, when we see the, the prisoner and the widow and the orphan, when we see injustice in the world, and God says to us, whom shall I send? We should answer, I'm here, send me. So I have a challenge for you this week. I, I want you to try a simple spiritual practice. Throughout the week, I want you to make time, not find time, but make time to sit with all of your feelings of worthlessness and doubt and self-loathing, to just sit with them. Find a quiet place, a quiet moment, a few minutes away. Sit and remember the way Isaiah felt. Remember how unworthy he felt in God's presence, how unworthy he felt of God's calling. And remember in that moment 
when you're when you're holding all of those feelings of worthlessness and doubt and self-loathing remember that god loves you just the way you are despite all of your flaws and all of your self-doubt god still loves you and then take all of those worries that you have about your life and how you feel unworthy and how you feel like you've stumbled, how you feel like you, you haven't lived up to other people's expectations. Take all of those things and lift them up to God in prayer and repent and ask for forgiveness for all of those things. Ask for forgiveness for all the ways you have fallen short during the week. And then sit quietly and listen for that small, still voice that you hear sometimes telling you that God loves you and that God has already forgiven you for all of those things, whether you asked or not. And then know deep in your heart that you are truly worthy of God's love and of the calling that God has given you to love your neighbor, not just your neighbor, but yourself as well. And then in, during the week, when you hear God asking, whom shall I send? Have faith, like Isaiah had faith. Have faith in God and say simply, I'm here, send me. Amen. <laughs>